There are few countries we associate with the manufacturing of vehicles quite like Germany, and few brands that boast such an impressive brand story as Daimler, home to Mercedes-Benz. The original inventors of the four-wheeler Daimler-Benz was formed in 1926 when Gottlieb Daimler and Carl Benz merged their then-competing companies into one unified brand. Almost a century later, in the midst of their competitors' race to rebrand as mobility or technology companies, Ole Schellenius, who leads both Daimler and Mercedes-Benz, is proud to say that they're still a car company, but one that's at the forefront of sustainable change. In today's episode of The Chiefs, we take a trip to Mercedes-Benz in Stuttgart to find out just how Schellenius plans to pivot Mercedes into an electric future and why this doesn't mean leaving human-centric design behind. Plus, why do electric cars have to have that blue glow? And should we call Mercedes' sub-brands tribes? I'm Tyler Brule, proud member of Mercedes' G-Tribe, and this is The Chiefs on Monocle 24. Let's start. We're in one of many buildings in Germany that has a glittering three-pointed star spinning on the rooftop. Here we are in you know, heading to 2022. Lots of companies talk about what they are. This is such a unique business and brand. Are you luxury? Are you m- mobility? Are you a digital company that has wheels? When you define this business, because you, you are really unique within your sector, what are you? If you want to put it in real uh, simple terms, what is Mercedes all about? It's very simple. We want to build the world's most desirable cars. So we are a car company at our core, of course, our founding fathers. And, and you're happy to say that still. When so many CEOs want to talk about their transformational this or trans, you're a car company. Yeah, we're a car company. We're proud to be a car company. We love this business. Uh, of course, uh, we get people from A to B and we're Mercedes. We get people from A to B in style. And of course, the auto industry is in complete and total transformation towards zero emission, electrification. The car is not the mechanical island uh, cut off from the rest of the world. It is a thing in the Internet of Things. It's fully connected. The car is going autonomous. We have a a full force technological revolution going on in the auto industry right now. So what's happening is we're really reinventing the original invention from our founding fathers. Maybe tell us just uh, where this building where we are right now, we're in, because of course, there are many buildings in and around Stuttgart, of course, affiliated with this company, but we are at the home of Daimler as well. What, what I find fascinating, though, is many companies have moved to, and if we're going to speak in a luxury space, they're sort of the LVMH equivalent. They're a house of many brands. Um, if you look under your umbrella, there are many brands, but when it comes to the driving experience, I see two. And of course, many of them hurtling around at different different sizes. Has that always been sort of the focus and consideration not to become a Richemont or an LVMH where you have 30, 40 brands under your umbrella? Mercedes-Benz is a combination between, between a luxury company, but it's a tech company. So it's an innovation-driven company. The origins of you know what did the founding fathers do they broke new ground it was the original startup it's this inner unrest of the engineer to kind of always invent something new so that that's where we come from and now 135 years down that road our dna our our soul of the brand is is known by everybody that works here so we're not trying to collect a bunch of brands but if you look at our brand strategy Everybody knows about Mercedes-Benz. That's the master brand. 
but we also have some interesting tribes in our so-called sub-brands. So if Mercedes is that master brand, let's talk about the tribes. AMG, performance luxury, yeah, for the ones that are looking for the additional thrill, looking for that performance technology. Race track, race cred on the road. Maybach, sophisticated luxury. The first engineer of Gottlieb Daimler, his right-hand man that over a hundred years ago had this eye for, for what's special. So ever so slightly understated, not in your face luxury, but sophisticated luxury. Then we have G, and I heard that you're a G fan. So that is a tribe. That's a tribe. G is a tribe. Because I thought it was only a tribe in Zurich. No, of course, G stands for adventure. I mean, it's the ultimate go anywhere car. Uh, so I call that adventurous luxury. But G transcends all segments and all marketing logic. If you're in, you're in. Uh, as, as you saw here now in, uh, in Munich at the IAA, G is going electric too. So, so pretty cool. And then the newest uh, brand in our tribe, EQ stands for electric intelligence and which is this journey into electrification uh, that we have committed to and within this decade really uh, we want to convert the company from being today based dominantly on combustion engine technologies to at the end of the decade be 100 percent electric where market conditions allow and be a dominant electric company and i want to come back to where market conditions allow because i, I think everyone's fascinated by how many different lanes the world will, will be driving in. Just, just on EQ very quickly, do you think from a brand point of view, why is it that everything associated with electrification has to have a blue aura or some other sub-color around it? I sort of look around the driving landscape and there still has to be some sort of brand marker around that I'm driving an e-vehicle. Why can't I just drive a car? And I'm not sure if you can answer that from a brand point of view. It's just a personal pet peeve. If you actually watch the first commercial for the EQC, which was the first car in, in kind of the EQ family that we launched now a couple of years ago, it's a short clip with The weekend. You know, he, he launched his The Blinding Light song with, with that. I think somebody asks him at the end of the spot, oh, wow, you're driving an electric car? And his answer is, no, I'm driving a Mercedes-Benz. So I, I totally understand where you're coming from. We thought also, why did we do EQ? Because at the beginning of this big transformation, and we know what the end station is, it's 100% electrification. For many of the ones that are not in the early adopter category and so on, it's almost like you need a little bit of an additional hook <laughs> where you get people in. I'm doing something different. But as we go through this journey, that will be the new normal. Do you think there's been too much of a push, and this is not just you know down to this company, but but many others, and also on the part of government as well, for this electrification drive almost too quickly when the infrastructure is not there? And and I'll give you an example. I, I maybe I didn't choose the right country. I was up in the Baltics a few weeks ago. I decided to sample an e-vehicle properly as part of a road trip. A challenge because you're getting a little bit stressed out on the Estonian countryside and it says that there's of course going to be a charging place and you passed a couple of petrol stations on the way and then you get there and is it of course the right clamp to go into the vehicle and all of these things and that's a whole other story. So there's this very strong narrative economically and, and socially that we move in this direction but then there's a lot of people who've gone back, a lot of people are waiting. So 
What's, what's your take when we look at where we are right now? Vehicles one side, but the infrastructure. It's true that the buildup of the infrastructure around the world is hugely important for the speed of adoption, uh, no doubt. And uh, we have to put together a plan where gradually we turn uh, the whole world into a network also of charging stations so that the convenience factor of mobility doesn't get lost. People don't want to lose convenience, they want to keep convenience. But I would like to take a step back. What's going on here? Why are we doing this? We're doing this because climate change is real. We're doing this because signing up to the Paris uh, Agreement is the right thing to do. We must do this. And what does that then mean if you put that back onto the desk of the engineer? You're now from the political level down to the engineer's desk. Well, we have to replace the energy source, right? So stop burning fossil fuels and create an energy source that is CO2 free. And for cars, the natural choice is electricity produced in a CO2 free renewable way. So your question was, are we going too fast? What's going on here? Are we going to put all these cars on the market and there's not, not enough charging infrastructure? I would almost argue from a climate change point of view, maybe we, we're not going fast enough. That is why in our presentation of our accelerated electric strategy at the end of July, we said, let's go faster. And even if we as a car manufacturer are a little bit ahead of the infrastructure, we actually put pressure <laughs> on the system then downstream. In the Fit for 55 EU commission paper that came out at the middle of July, not only have they given us uh, enormously ambitious targets in reducing CO2 between now and 2030, they also put an obligation on member states to also do the equivalent charging infrastructure. So you're absolutely right. It needs to go hand in hand. But if one of the activities pushes ahead a little bit faster, so be it. I'd rather be on the forefront than, uh, than be behind. For those listeners who are maybe not looking at the annual report, not seeing, of course, uh, every single press release that goes out, how much are you in lockstep with government or also a player when you think about infrastructure then as well? To avoid this chicken or egg, we have skin in the game. And if we take the system that we're used to, uh, do we build petrol stations? No, we don't. I mean, other people do that. On three fronts, we are ourselves active. We're part of a consortium here in Europe called Ionity with other OEMs and other investors, where we said, let's not wait. We will build a fast charging network along the highway uh, grid around Europe so that if you want to go long distance, uh, you can have uh, high power, high kilowatt charging, uh, and if you take the new EQS uh, in, in 15 minutes, you can charge up 300 kilometers, which is pretty good. So that's one initiative where we are now, you could argue, we are now building the petrol station to make sure that the thing gets off the ground. Secondly, if you do get an electric Mercedes, any one electric Mercedes, and all the sub-brands that we talked about, all of them are going electric too. We have perfect wall box home integration solutions for you. And most people, and this is one of the reasons I think the luxury segment is going to lead, most people that buy a Mercedes, they have access to driveway, they have a garage, they have something, they, they can get to electricity. So we'll take care of you at home, which means you live at the petrol station. So you never leave your driveway without a full battery. 
which means probably more than 95% of your trips, you will never have to charge somewhere else. Then comes the third thing, a modern progressive company nowadays needs to provide charging at work as well, because it's the other obvious place where the car usually sits around for eight hours or more. And that's what we're doing around our factories, our offices around the world. When we build new offices, we put in charging infrastructure. We're sitting in a city, we're sitting in Stuttgart today, where, of course, we've seen many levels of protest around various uh, aspects of, of infrastructure. And, of course, the car has had no break and, and the car gets a very difficult time. This move and this high-speed move to E, do you think the car gets a bit of a break in this period right now? It becomes less of a demon. Of course, it doesn't necessarily solve traffic problems. When we think about emissions in the cities, can, can the car have a bit of a sigh of relief for a moment? Or do you think there's still going to be pressure on the vehicle? The car has truly been the machine that has changed the world. We have now gotten used to that you have self-determined, individual freedom anywhere you can go anywhere whenever you like it but it is incredible you talk about this emancipation the freedom and and yet we're in the situation where the, the car seems to be so often the devil i think actually most people if you take away this individual choice and individual freedom they would immediately realize that they would want to have it back so i strongly strongly believe that in mobility of the future People are not going to move less, they're going to move more. So I don't think we have an option where we say, let's abolish mobility. And on the transport side, I mean, we're the biggest truck and bus maker in the world on the transport side. The whole basis for an economy is based upon transport. But there has been a side effect, and we cannot neglect the side effect, and the side effect has been CO2. So yes, you could legitimately say you have this freedom, but at a cost. So what's the transformation about? that cost needs to go away. We need to engineer the side effect out of the invention. But I think another thing that people are thinking about, what about the traffic situation? Up until now, when the cars have been, you know, individual little islands doing their thing, and the, uh, the only computer that is thinking about what the machine should do is, is the human computer of the brain, uh, in a world of everything being connected with everything else, and we are on our way there, it will mean that every single other car kind of knows what all the other things on the road are doing. We will have smarter traffic in the future and we can then avoid through intelligence, crowd intelligence, artificial intelligence, uh, unnecessary traffic jams. So I think the experience could not only be clean, zero emission, it could also be more enjoyable. And even now in some circumstances, and I, I drove recently, we're about to certify the first true level three system for kind of a highway traffic pilot, a traffic jam type of pilot, when you can actually push a button and in some circumstances now, the computer takes over, it actually, actually drives, you're not responsible in that situation. Then you get the greatest gift of all, you're given time back that you can do whatever you please with it. Maybe you want to relax a little bit, maybe you want to check your message, maybe you want to read Monocle. Yeah, so it's about to get even better. And as a technology optimist, I strongly believe this is uh, even 135 years in the making, a very, very attractive growth business going into the future. Now, is that about giving time back? Or is it also about 
more abdication from from risk as well. So I'm not just talking about the traffic situation, but just this ongoing sort of de-risking that we have of of society that in a way I'm not responsible for for anything anymore. Is that a place we move to? And I say this, I was having a discussion with your colleague on the way in saying, you know, increasingly we sort of switch our switch our brains off uh, a little bit. And I was in Greece a few weeks ago, was driving a very small vehicle made by a, a Czech auto brand. And it was just a stick shift. It was brand new. It did nothing. There was like no knobs, dials or anything, but it was driving. And it was really exciting, <laughs> oddly. And are we going to see, are, are we going to be able to have this world where we can, or, or do you see a sector as well, which is not just about putting your feet up and hopefully reading monocle in the back of, or even the front seat of your car, but also a place that we can really drive still. I mean, and that's not just down to you, that's also down to the authorities as well. I also enjoy driving. I think we're gonna have both, but there are maybe some situations, maybe when you don't wanna drive. Let's say you've had a really long, stressful day in the office. Uh, and if I think a few years into the future uh, and I drive home, my drive home is depending on if I'm in this office or where we have our engineering uh, quarters, maybe it's a 15, 20, half, half an hour drive. At the end of such a long day, if I, if I could push a button and just say, home, please, uh, that's enjoyable too. <laughs> but in terms of risk, um, uh, the technology is in and around driving assistance and autonomous drives. It's also about saving lives. You're not a traffic authority. It's going to take us a while to get there. But I would imagine either this means getting all of the old stupid vehicles off the road, though, or will we be able to have a hybrid world where I can still drive my Czech branded car that does nothing? It doesn't talk to anyone. It's not even interested in it. And I can have the newest lineup from from you or, or any other makers. I, I'm very realistic about this. I think we're going to have to have coexistence. Because if you would say, let's make a cutoff date, we'll take uh, the 1st of January 2030, let's get rid of all the old cars, and we are only allowed to do new cars. It would be uh, as if the state confiscated your personal property. I don't think it would go down well with many people, irrespective of the fact that uh, many people would not be able to afford that to then buy a new car and so on. So realistically, we're going to have to have coexistence. What does that mean? That vehicles that become more and more autonomous, they have their computer brain, they have their artificial intelligence, they have all the sensor set, which is the eyes and the ears of the car. And ultimately, those computer-driven cars will be more alert and more aware than any human driver which means they will also be able to react to erratic behavior from a human driver. So the only realistic scenario here is coexistence. But over time, there will be more and more smart vehicles, and gradually the older vehicles will be retired. Ola, you've been at this company for a while now. Maybe you can just let me in on a couple of meetings, any snapshots uh, that must have happened with management consultancies coming to this into this business, being a premium brand that you are. And then, of course, you've got Unimogs, you've got buses, you've got trucks, you've got all kinds of things, also with a three-pointed star on them. That's kind of amazing. And I can't think of any brand in the world, actually, where you can pull up at the Hotel du Cap in an S-Class, but also the laundry can be picked up by a sprinter with the same logo. Has there been a number of heated discussions in rooms like this one where people have said, look, you've got a rebad, you just get that thing off those trucks. You know, we can only put this on 
our core Mercedes-Benz lineup. It doesn't belong anywhere else. This is a phenomenon that is truly unique to the Mercedes-Benz brand. Again, if we think back, of course, we didn't only invent the car, we invented the truck, we invented the bus, we invented pretty much anything that has four wheels or more and drives on the road. So that is something that is in the heritage of the company and the heritage of the brand. And as you say, I don't know of any other luxury brand, true luxury brand, that can have, as, as you say, the superstar, film star, walking out onto the red carpet and at the back of the building, the truck that picks up the trash uh, carries a, a three-pointed star. And the interesting thing is, and we don't need any consultants or anything to, to analyze this, even though this has been going on now for more than 100 years, there's absolutely no confusion. And the people that buy a commercial vehicle, usually you buy a commercial vehicle, not because you want to, because you have to. It's a business tool. It's driven by total cost of ownership. Still, if you ask a truck driver that is driving a, an Actros, for instance, still a sense of pride there with that star. So since there is no real brand confusion and it doesn't hurt our passenger car business, it's just fine. So this is where I come back to maybe a little bit of just a, a shift towards management. This is something which has to be to be lived. And of course, we, you know, we're now coming up to sadly almost two years of living through this pandemic. When people are in businesses, I think you have to be in it to understand the brand. And of course, we've had lots of people across screens and, and you hear from every manager. It's very difficult to get people on board to reinforce your brand when you know, people are sitting at home in their sweatpants or their boxer shorts or however they choose to to run their day. You know, for you, uh, and you think about this, you know, this phenomenon with the three-pointed star, any lessons learned or things that need to be re-underlined? Well, the first lessons, lesson learned, and, and, and we really it really hit us in February of last year uh, in our operations in China. So that's where we had the first lockdowns and so on. The first lessons learned is that this unique and fantastic Mercedes team came together. So it's one of those things, something happens, an external event happens that we were not expecting, even though pa pandemic scenarios have been discussed. It's, it's actually, I, I asked our crisis staff, you know, we have a group of people that come together and they had pandemic actually as one chapter <laughs> in our crisis response manual, if you will. Uh, so people came together. It's first about, you know, protecting people, protecting your staff, protecting the, our customers and every, everybody around us. That has worked really well. That is when even a 300,000 people company actually becomes a family again. So from that point of view, adverse situation like that, maybe even is, 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 is something that brings a company to a new level. In terms of how, how do you keep this brand and brand spirit alive? One other unique thing for Mercedes is most people that work here actually work here for their whole careers. I've been here since I went out of uh, university. I started here, went here because of the brand, never looked back. So for people that are here, they have it in their blood. It's in the DNA. You don't lose that. Even even after 20 months of video conference and so on, you don't lose that. We're just off the back of a major, let's call it jamboree in Munich about mobility, uh, but also a bit of, you know, you could say, a celebration, even though international, but also a celebration of the German Mittelstand, Deutschland Incorporated, many things. Has this industry, and I'm speaking specifically in this country, recovered and not from the pandemic, but I, I can think of being in one of your buildings here in this city, one of the other companies that's also here, Ingolstadt, elsewhere. There, there was a moment where 
people were caught in the headlights. I was in so many marketing meetings and there could only be a focus on one vehicle that had come out of the States. We all know who we're talking about here. And it, it, everyone seemed quite frozen. I'm wondering, do you get a sense that the industry here has got its groove back? If you looked at what we presented in Munich, I mean, it was uh, electric cars from A to C, the new EQE, fantastic little brother of the EQS already. I mean, half a year behind the EQS, we had the first AMG version of the EQS. We had an electric Maybach. I mean, wow. Uh, so for that very discerning clientele, and then uh, you as a G fan, uh, how did you like that electric G? I mean, now I guess you can go to the base camp of Mount Everest uh, zero emission then in, in, in the future. So uh, those are things that have not just happened in the last 18 or 24 months. Our journey towards electrification is something that we have really kicked off in earnest around 2015, 2016 and so on. Before that, the market was not really there. If a new disruptor comes in and demonstrates there can be a market, of course, that can shake things up. So it's sometimes good to have one of those, have a curveball thrown at you. The engineering strength of the German auto industry of our company is so deep that not only what we presented at Mercedes in Munich, our esteemed competitors, I think, did a pretty good, good job as well. So the German industry, which has the goal of being at the forefront of technology, forefront of innovation, I think we are in a, in a very strong position to also write the next chapter of what the automotive world is going to look like. So yes, transformation is more uncertainty, uh, but we're doing this with a can-do uh, mentality. And I think the products that we have demonstrated are hugely attractive. We, we started this and you really you know, stood behind this being a, a, a car company, which I like and and I appreciate that that you're very straight talking. Of course, a lot of people talk about digitization and of course all of the things that that's going to 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 deliver. I'm just curious you talk about the, the Schwabian world. Are we moving too much into a place right now where everyone has to be sort of focused on the digital because we're still going to need people to make things. This country is known for its Mittelstand. And at a time we of course have many economies which only want to be service-based. And there's no sense of using your hands. There's no joy in being on an assembly line. How do you square that with a brand like this? Humans are a physical being. That means that the vessel that we will travel in is a physical thing. But uh, the digital world gives us the whole world at our fingertips wherever we are. And if you look into a car, take the EQE that we presented with this unbelievable hyperscreen that, that really blows you away. Compare it maybe to a, an upscale home. You have the latest, most beautiful, high-tech TV, uh, maybe designer brand TV. But what else do you have in your living room? Great looking furniture, other things, physical object. It's the blend of the digital world and the analog world that makes the difference. That's what a luxury car of the, of the present and of the future looks like. So you need to do both. We spend, and I spend, a lot of time together with design and engineering talking about just that. Not one-dimensional, just digital technology. We have to do that. Not just the mechanical machine. We have to do that. The blend of those two brought into harmony for you. Just before we uh, we wrap up, this uh, 
southwest part of the country that we're, we're sitting in, of course, is known for a bit of a can-do mentality. A lot of people will look at Germany, though, and say, look, a nation which has done you know, extraordinary things, not just in the automotive space on the premium side. You can I often say, you know, when you go to any good hotel in the world, it's, there's often, if they're not German, there's a Swiss GM who's running the show as well. And, and sometimes Germany gets a bit of a hard rap when it comes to, to luxury. But of course, you and, and your competitors have done a very good job there. How important is German provenance to a brand like this? Of course, we're a global company. So we are everywhere. Our brand is everywhere. We have operations everywhere. We have colleagues around the world, uh, uh, super talented people in, in, in every country in the world. And of course, I came here also, and I'm not German, so I came here as a Swede, as a, as a guest. Yeah. And you have to say it's, it, it, it's not an accident that uh, the best cars in the world are German, the best kitchens in the world are German, the best machines, the best, uh, I don't know, uh, bathrooms, uh, whatever you look like. Uh, this is a culture that produces quality, that understands precision, that understands perfection. So something in the culture here is special. So even if you transport this uh, to the world and you replicate that way of working in and around the world, Yes, there is some kind of a German soul, or even here for this company, it's part of the country is called Swabia, a Swabian soul. And that's, that's something I think we need to keep no matter what nationality you're from. My thanks to Mercedes CEO Ola Shalanius for this week's episode of The Chiefs. And if you'd like to see this interview in print, the freshly redesigned October edition of Monocle magazine is on newsstands now. Or head to monocle.com to subscribe. This episode of The Chiefs was produced by Paige Reynolds and edited by Steph Chungu with the recording assistance of Desiree Bandley. I'm Tyler Belay. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.